Welcome to this latest episode in the Herbert Smith Freehills FDI Friday podcast series, in which our foreign direct investment regulation experts are sharing their insights into FDI regimes around the globe. I'm Ruth Allen, a professional support lawyer in our competition regulation and trade practice in London, and I'm joined today by Sandia Foster, a director in our competition practice based in Johannesburg, and Stuart Payne, a senior associate in the same team, both of whom have extensive experience of advising on cross-border transactions. In today's episode, we'll be discussing foreign investment regulation in South Africa, focusing on practical insights for investors. As things currently stand, enabling provisions for a standalone FDI regime in South Africa have been passed into law, but have not yet come into force. However, pending the implementation of that standalone regime, broader public interest considerations are very much part of the review process as part of the merger control regime. Stuart, could you start off by explaining a bit more about the current state of play in terms of a standalone FDI regime in South Africa? Thanks, Ruth. As you've already mentioned, the enabling provisions for a standalone FDI regime in South Africa have been passed into law, but have not yet come into force or been operationalized. This has been the case for some time now. The provisions were originally included as part of the amendments to the Competition Act that were passed into law on 13 February 2019. Various other aspects of this Amendment Act came into force with effect from July 2019 and a second tranche from February 2020, but the enabling provisions of the FDI regime have not yet been operationalized. We don't currently yet have an indication of when we can expect the provisions to come into effect or the reason for there being such a delay in this happening. There was a fair amount of criticism or skepticism around the provisions when they were proposed to be included in the Amendment Act. They were amended as the public consultation process went along, but ultimately the provisions in an amended form were still included and passed as part of the final Amendment Act. It may be that some of this criticism that was raised at the time and potentially subsequently has played a role in delaying the implementation. We have seen some amendments in the past to the Competition Act that have been passed into law but never op operationalized and later then removed by way of a later Amendment Act. It remains to be seen whether that is the fate of the FDI regime, although it is probably unlikely that the proposed regime will be abandoned entirely. More likely is that the political will and or resources required to operationalize the provisions, which also requires the promulgation of various supporting regulations, has so far been lacking or has been less of a priority than other initiatives within the executive branch of government. From a timing point of view, the need for supporting regulations to operationalize the provisions means we will likely have a fairly substantial lead time before the regime comes into effect. The regulations themselves will still have to go through a process of public consultation. It's therefore unlikely that we'll be caught by surprise if or when it is finally operationalized, but it is still worth firms that may be caught by the regime being aware if they are going through or contemplating transactions that it may catch. Thanks, Stuart. And in terms of identifying whether a proposed transaction might be caught by that standalone regime once implemented, what are the key points to be aware of in terms of the scope of the regime? As I've mentioned, the enabling provisions of the FDI regime are located within the Competition Act, although there is some question about how comfortably the FDI regime sits within this act, given its somewhat different objectives from traditional merger control. But in broad terms, the relevant provisions establish a framework within which a politically appointed committee 
may prohibit a transaction that involves an acquisition by a foreign acquiring firm and relates to certain yet to be identified national security interests. The committee is to be constituted by the president and it will comprise cabinet members and other public officials as may be determined and appointed by the president. The definition of a foreign acquiring firm is fairly broad and would include any firm incorporated outside of South Africa or a firm whose place of effective management is outside of South Africa. The list of relevant national security interests is to be identified by the president and promulgated in the Gazette. While this is for the president to identify, the provisions state that he must take into account all relevant factors, including the potential impact of a merger transaction on a variety of areas, which are then listed in the provisions. These include defense capabilities, sensitive technologies, infrastructure security, supply of criti critical goods and services to South African citizens, intelligence and law enforcement, and the country's international interests and foreign relationships, terrorism and organized crime, and in general, the economic and social stability of the country. Thanks, Stuart. And where a transaction falls within that scope, could you briefly talk us through how the notification and review process would play out and what the timing implications would be for the overall deal timetable? So the provisions contemplate a dual notification procedure, which will be implemented where the transaction must be filed with the committee at the same time that it is notified to the Competition Commission. The provisions provide for an initial period of 60 business days for the committee to consider whether the transaction has an adverse effect on the identified list of national security interests. The committee must give particular consideration to whether the foreign acquiring firm is controlled by a foreign government. The 60 business day period aligns with the period for consideration of an intermediate merger by the competition authorities, but for purposes of the FDI regime, it will be capable of extension on good cause shown, whereas for an intermediate merger, it's a hard stop after the 60 business days and it can't be extended. The president will, however, still need to publish regulations setting out the details of the notification requirements, processes, procedure and timeframes to be followed by the committee. This is one of the key pieces that will need to be put in place before the regime can be operationalized. The FDI regime is linked to the merger control regime in the sense that the committee's powers to intervene are only triggered if the transaction is a notifiable merger, by which we mean an intermediate or large merger that would require mandatory notification to the South African competition authorities. The provisions also provide that the competition authorities may not consider a merger if it has not been notified to the committee where such a notification would be required. In addition, any approval by the competition authorities is also deemed to be revoked if the parties have failed to notify the committee. The provisions further stipulate that the competition authorities may not make a decision in relation to a merger that has been prohibited by the committee on national security grounds. And finally, there are also provisions for a failure to notify or prior implementation of a transaction without the necessary approval of the committee, which may then attract financial penalties in the same way that would arise for a failure to notify a merger to the competition authorities. Thanks, Stuart. And turning back to the current position as things actually stand at the moment, given that the standalone regime you've just been explaining isn't actually operational yet, how is foreign investment currently regulated in practice in South Africa? I know there are public interest provisions within the merger control regime. Sandia, could I ask you to pick up on that? 
Thanks, Ruth. That's correct. The merger control regime under the Competition Act is of relevance to all investment, including foreign investment in South Africa, provided, of course, that the merger thresholds are met or the merger is otherwise notifiable. The South African merger control regime is different to what one might encounter in other jurisdictions in that competition law considerations and public interest considerations in merger assessments have an equal weighting. What this means is that when assessing mergers, the competition authorities must first consider whether the proposed transaction is likely to substantially prevent or lessen competition, and if so, determine whether there are any technological efficiency or other pro-competitive gains that outweigh those anti-competitive effects. And regardless of its findings in relation to the competition assessment, the competition authorities must then also consider whether merger can or cannot be justified on substantial public interest grounds. There are two potential consequences that flow from this. One, even if a merger does not raise competition concerns, it can still be prohibited on the grounds of public interest. And two, an anti-competitive merger may be approved on the basis that it is justified by substantial public interest benefits. Thanks, Sandia. And how does that play out in practice? Have there been any recent examples of the public interest provisions being used to either prohibit a merger purely on public interest grounds or to approve an anti-competitive merger? Yes. In fact, in 2021, the Commission prohibited the first merger, known as the Burger King merger, on the grounds of public interest, despite finding that the merger did not raise any competition issues. We have also seen the Commission recommend an approval and the Tribunal approve an anti-competitive merger, which raised serious competition concerns in certain local markets, purely on the basis of a very handsome public interest package that was offered by the merging parties. This is not always the case, however. Currently, the Tribunal is considering an appeal of a prohibition by the Commission of the merger between Axo Noble and Kansai, despite the public interest package being offered. As in the Commission's view, the public interest benefits did not outweigh the competition concerns that the merger raised on the basis that the public interest commitments were already in pre-existing plans and were not incremental. But it remains to be seen how the Tribunal will respond to this. Thanks. And could you explain in a bit more detail what the public interest factors are that will be taken into account when reviewing a transaction? Yes, yeah, sure. The public interest factors to be considered in every merger assessment, which were enhanced by amendments to the legislation in 2019, are the effect that the merger will have on a particular industrial sector or region, employment, the ability of national industries to compete in international markets, and pursuant to legislative amendments in 2019, the ability of small and medium businesses, or SMEs, or firms controlled or owned by historically disadvantaged persons, or what we call HDPs, to effectively participate in or expand within the market. And finally, the promotion of a greater spread of ownership, in particular to increase the levels of ownership by HDPs and workers and firms in the market. It was actually on this last factor that the Burger King merger was initially prohibited, as the HDP ownership in the target dropped from approximately 68% to 0% as a result of the merger. An employment share ownership program was subsequently offered, resulting in its approval by the Competition Tribunal on appeal. While this may sound alarming, particularly to foreign investors, it is useful to understand the context in which these public interest factors arise and how we have seen the Commission implemented in practice. 
The preamble of our composition legislation refers to the excessive concentration of ownership and control within the national economy and unjust restrictions on the full and free participation in the economy by all South Africans as a result of the discriminatory laws and practices of the past and the need for the economy to be open to a greater ownership by a greater number of South Africans. The introduction of the factors relating to the effective participation of SMMEs and HDPs in the market and the promotion of ownership and merger assessments was an attempt to address these issues through merger control. While historically the competition authorities focused on the employment public interest factor, with any job losses or potential job losses raising concerns and causing delays in the merger assessment, since the amendments have come into effect, there has been an increased focus on public interest more generally and specifically on the new public interest factors by the competition authorities. By way of example, in the 2022 and 2023 financial year, the Commission recommended or imposed conditions in 68 mergers, which is just over a quarter of the total merger notifications made that year. In 34 of these merger cases, ownership conditions were imposed. 22 of these had employee share ownership programs imposed that had a total value of 22 billion rand or around 1.1 billion euros, with three high-profile mergers accounting for about 70% of this. In 12 of these merger cases, HDP transactions were imposed, which had a total value of 5.1 billion rand or around 260 million euros. Total undertakings in the same year made in relation to supply development and procurement in furtherance of the public interest factor relating to effective participation of SMEs and HGPs in the market was about 36.8 billion rand or around 1.8 billion euros. So it's quite evident the prominence that the Commission places on public interest, particularly those that relate to SMEs and HGP participation and HGP and worker ownership. There is in fact a heightened level of scrutiny where there's a foreign acquiring firm, as there are fears that the acquiring firm will move head office or manufacturing facilities out of South Africa or reduce local procurement in favour of global suppliers, and there are often conditions imposed to prevent this. Some of the most onerous public interest commitment packages have in fact been imposed in mergers with foreign acquirers, such as in the Walmart MassMart merger, and more recently the ShopRite MassMart merger and the Heineken Dassel merger. For example, looking at the Heineken-Distel merger, aside from the conditions to address employment, Heineken undertook to invest approximately 16.2 billion rand, or approximately 800 million euros, in capex, production commitments, enterprise and supply development, localization and growth, and to establish an employee share ownership program to hold a fully voting shareholding of approximately 6% in the South African company that will own and control the South African business. And this was valued at about 3.5 billion rand, or about 175 million euros. Thanks, Sandia. And where public interest factors do need to be considered, what impact does that tend to have on the review process in terms of overall timing? Well, one of the major criticisms around the public interest assessment and merger assessments is the unpredictability, complexity, cost and delay associated with it particularly as the Minister of the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition often participates in mergers of of particular interest to the Ministry, which often results in parallel negotiations between the merging parties and the Commission on one hand, and the merging parties and the Minister on the other. Trade unions are also quite active in merger proceedings, particularly where the merger may result in job losses, which causes further delays and complexities, 
And these delays could be anything from several weeks to months, depending on the type of transaction that it is and the merger review timelines that are applicable to the transaction. And how transparent is the review process in terms of how decisions are reached and predictability for the parties to transactions under review? This has been one of the frustrations that merging parties and practitioners have had. But the Commission has recently published new draft guidelines on public interest considerations in merger assessments for public comment, which is intended to provide greater clarity on the Commission's policy in relation to public interest, which has to date been evolving and unpredictable. These draft guidelines have provoked some controversy, including as it appears to be the Commission's interpretation that the ownership factor requires a positive obligation on merging parties and considers that in every merger, there ought to be an increase of the levels of ownership by HGPs and workers, even if the merger does not result in a dilution of ownership and is in fact neutral with respect to the sector. Even if the merger is a global merger that triggers a technical filing in South Africa, even if it's a foreign-to-foreign transaction, etc. Unless the merging parties can demonstrate why a remedy to promote a greater spread of ownership of HDPs or workers may not be workable, such as the target being in business rescue, the transaction reducing the debt of HDPs or workers arising from previous empowerment transactions, whether an alternative form of ownership and participation of HDPs or workers have been offered elsewhere in the group or the merged entity, or whether the transaction changes the quality of the shareholding by HDPs or workers. Generally, however, if this cannot be justified, the Commission's starting point is to request an employee share ownership program, which should hold no less than 5% of the value or shares of the merged entity, or an HDP transaction, where there's a divestment of part of the business to an HDP shareholder. The guidelines are, however, non-binding and is quite clear that mergers will be assessed on a case-by-case basis. And we have in fact seen the Commission do this in various mergers on which we have worked, including not requiring an ownership commitment if the target firm is in financial difficulty or accepting commitments that promote the effective participation by SMEs and HDPs in the market, including by facilitating the entry of small HDP businesses in the market through initiatives like skills development, business training, and access to funding on preferential terms. This is an evolving practice and will take the Commission some time to settle into a standard practice, as they have done in relation to the employment public interest factor. But our economic context and policies to address the economic consequences of the historical discrimination on racial grounds is something that merging parties, particularly foreign acquiring firms, need to be aware of when investing in South Africa. The interpretation of the ownership factor is, however, by no means settled, as no court has opined on how it should be interpreted in the context of the Act and our Constitution. So there may well be further developments on this in the future. Thanks, Sandia and Stuart, for sharing your insights into FDI regulation in South Africa. It's been a really interesting discussion and certainly a jurisdiction to keep a close eye on with the new standalone regime on the horizon. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. But thanks to our listeners for joining us. And please do let us know if you have any feedback on this episode or indeed any suggestions for areas to cover in future episodes of FDI Fridays.